This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. One of the things about the commercial art world is that it will take as much of your power as you're willing to give it. If you want to give it all of your power over what you do in the studio and what you're capable of thinking about, then fine, it will take all of that. It doesn't mean that you will automatically be rewarded. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, I'm so happy to see you again. I feel like it's been a long time. Yeah, uh, we've had a because of summer and vacations and yeah. trips. We've had a we've gotten off schedule, so it's it's been a bit strange. Well, also there was the time that Karen sabotaged the brake line of your car so yeah. that she could fill in for you for a couple of weeks. Yeah, good luck finding a car in my life. But sure, sure. Um, before we get any further, I have to know whose voice we heard at the top of the show. Who was that? That was the artist, teacher, and thinker Nayland Blake, uh, whose work actually is currently on display as part of the Whitney Biennial. Wow. And what kind of work does Nayland make? Well, Nayland's had a long career in a variety of different media. Uh, I read an interview with them where they referred to themselves as a sculptor in the past. Mm. Um, and there's certainly a lot of that in the in the oeuvre. But they've also <laughs> done uh, performance work, lots of drawing, lots of kind of stuff that defies categorization, okay. uh, um, etc. As you'll hear in the interview, actually, one of the three works they have at the Whitney takes the form of a consulting practice of all things. I am very excited to hear this interview, but first, I believe that you have an extra segment just for Slate Plus members. What will they hear? Well, believe it or not, June, Nayland and I are going to talk about video games and about what artists can learn from the ways that video games are rethinking the art-audience relationship. Whoa. You'll also hear about the leather bar uh, they <laughs> built on their Animal Crossing island. Way to get me into Animal Crossing. Okay, this is incredibly intriguing. I'm not a gamer myself, but I always enjoy hearing smart people talk about video games. So that is something I would not want to miss personally. Fortunately, it's super easy to join Slate Plus, and it's an incredible value. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts. You can read anything. Read until you are sated on the Slate site without ever hitting a paywall. And you'll hear member-exclusive episodes and segments from shows like Culture Gabfest and The Waves. To learn more about becoming a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Nayland Blake. Nayland Blake, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your process here on Working. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. There's probably no better place for us to start than with your current project that is up at the Whitney Biennial. It is called Got an Art Problem. And uh, I was wondering if you could just tell our listeners about it. Sure. For the run of the exhibition, a couple of days a week, I am meeting one-on-one -on -one with folks who have art problems, who have problems with their creativity. And um, I do a little sort of interview process with them and talk to them about what they do and hopefully come up with some strategies that might be helpful for them. How do you find the artists who you're helping? 
Well, this has really been a collaboration with the Whitney's education department. Mm. And so when I initially proposed this project to the, to the museum, I suggested that I wanted to focus on three different kinds of folks, um, one of which was uh, Whitney's staff. The next was people who were involved in their youth programs and then uh, seniors. And so uh, the Whitney's done a, a bunch of outreach and issued invitations to people. And then every week I'm meeting these people for the first time. So it's sort of the it's it's an opportunity to get to know them and uh, spend some time, you know, just sitting and, and talking about the process. You exchange drawings with them as well, right? Like, well, yeah, I part of what we have had for the application process is that we have a questionnaire that the person fills out and I ask them to make a drawing of their problem. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the interview, we install their drawing on the walls of the Whitney office that we've been meeting in. And I have drawings that they can select to have for themselves. Oh, that's fascinating. And, you know, I actually took a photo of those drawings because I was at the, uh, at the biennial yesterday and, and they're, they're really wonderful. I mean, it sort of turns the space into a work of art of itself. There's, there's one that's a, a clock. That's the hands of a clock and mm-hmm. I keep moving in each one. There's, there's one that's sort of two, 3d tables and it says no room at the table. And anyway, they're, they're really, they're really fascinating. Um, how did you come up with this project? Where did, where did it start for you? I've worked for my entire career, sort of in three areas in the arts. I'm, I'm a working artist. I also have supported myself by working at nonprofit artist run organizations as a administrator and as a curator. And then I've also worked as a teacher. And so in the midst of the pandemic, when I was sort of contemplating what my participation in the biennial might be, I was feeling, frankly, quite disheartened with the art world in general and uh, the museum world and how things were going in New York and in our country. And so I asked myself the question, well, what is my the piece of this that I actually do enjoy? What's the piece of this that is important to me? And it is that moment of looking at what someone does, being able to, in a way, kind of diagnose what they do, you know, or what's going on with them, where they're at in the process, and then um, hopefully suggesting a strategy that might make sense for them to make the next thing, to keep going forward. Can I just ask a little bit about that disheartened feeling? I mean, I, I think you and I probably share uh, what's mm-hmm. disheartening about this country, but I'm curious very specifically about the art world and the museum world and maybe frustrations, I don't know, with your own practice or whatever about 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 what the source of that um, disheartening feeling was. And, you know, when you have that moment during the pandemic to pause kind of what you were reevaluating and, and what was proving problematic for you. In the largest sense... I think that what is valuable about art is that it is the place where we can encounter multiplicity and ambiguity in a non-lethal way. Mm-hmm. And what 
we've seen in this country in the past, you know, decade is this drive to polarization and certainty. People are so threatened by the prospect of not knowing the answer that they would rather have somebody who has a horrible answer than to have somebody who wants to think about things or or try to find a way to think about things. And so art is really a valuable place philosophically, but the sort of structures um, that are in place to support art have become increasingly difficult to navigate and Mm -hmm. um, increasingly uh, class-bound. It's been harder and harder for people to you know, go to museums and feel like they have any sort of a home there, you know, sort of like their job is to go there and look at what's on the walls and then be kind of shuffled off to a gift shop or shuffled off to a cafe. Um, And this is really reflected in the, in the physical design of a lot of museums, but it's also there in the way that museums were responding to the very real social pressures that were going on. You know, the Whitney itself had uh, some real missteps in the midst of the Black Lives Matter uprisings, right? Where they mm-hmm. boarded up the facade of the museum and then um, put together a show that was uh, well-intentioned perhaps in its attempt to um, capture the political activism of Black Lives Matter's artists, but the way in which they acquired the work was really morally questionable and exploitative. So these places that could be locations for a kind of tender encounter of intimacy have become increasingly alienated. And Mm. so that's in some ways, you know, my problem with it. I'm, I grew up, I'm a native New Yorker. I grew up seeing the New York art world of the, 60s and 70s, which was a much um, shaggier and unprofessional place, you know, because in part, um, there was never the idea that you could make a a living doing it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, (laughs) right. (laughs) And it was like, oh my God, I could live my life without having to worry about, like, you know, making a living. Right. I mean, Clearly, you see an effect that that has on the work itself and the way that work is presented in a certain maybe almost sterility, because you used the term intimacy before, mm-hmm. almost kind of sterility or an austerity in that relationship between spectator and um, and art. Do you feel that it has affected the process of art making itself? Like, do you feel... Well, maybe in your own work, even because you've spoken very eloquently about the deleterious effects of capitalism on art making in in this country. I've been very inspired, actually, going through your old interviews by some of the things you've said about it. And I'm just wondering if, you know, you're a human in this world. Mm -hmm. You're you're a human being in capitalism. Do you feel like in your own work and in your own process, you have to kind of actively resist that? Do you feel there's like a it's tendrils coming in and affecting your work? Well, I think you have to continually ask yourself the question, what can I do with what I have now? Like, where is my leverage in this situation? Right. Um, You know, I do think I, and particularly when I speak to younger artists and I speak to students, 
Well, for example, I could I could take an example from one of the art problems. Um, I met with someone, they were just recently out of art school and they were, you know, very, very kind of tenuous about making anything. And they were showing me all their previous work. It was this very funny kind of quirky, shaggy, anecdotal, interesting stuff. And they explained that they had a friend who was also an artist who was a little bit further along in their career. And their friend was like, well, look, you should take down your website. You should not show this stuff. It should be really consistent. And, you know, in doing that, I'll be able to get you some representation. There's somebody who's interested in looking at artists like this. And, um, and so they were being presented with this common sense that was streamline what you do, make it recognizable. Be a brand. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, this is the way that you have a career. And I felt so badly for them because they, the way they were expressing it was so pained and constricted. It was like, well, I guess I'm going to have to do this. And, you know, one of the things about the commercial art world is that it will take as much of your power as you're willing to give it. Mm. If you want to give it all of your power over what you do in the studio and what you're capable of thinking about, then fine. It will take all of that. It doesn't mean that you will automatically be rewarded. So what happens if you give it all that power and then you don't get anything in return? Right. And, you know, we, we got to the end of the session and I was like, well, you know, because this worked for your friend, it doesn't mean it's going to work for you. And in fact, you can now go back and tell your friend that you have work hanging on the walls of the Whitney before they do. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's one of those moments of like, okay, I don't have the power to upend this market, but I do have the power to have an interaction with this person that is about what is genuinely at stake for being an artist and making art. Yeah. You know, when you said that, it, it made me think of, um, you know, Gustin, Philip Gustin's late work yeah. and how despised it was yeah, um, because he had broken with abstraction and was moving into these very cartoony uh, figures. And, you know, there was like w only one critic who liked it. I mean, you know, it was, it yeah. was, he was despised in some ways because of what he had done. I mean, Gustin is an excellent case in point and has been like a real example for me in terms of yeah. my career, because I think part of what Gustin did in that moment is that he went back to drawing imagery from the funny pages, from the cartoons that he looked at, you know, as a kid. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at um, drawings of the Crazy Cat comic strip, you know, they move directly into the way that Gustin constructs space. But I think Gustin's also an amazing case in point at the moment because of all of the controversy about the recent Gustin retrospective that's currently yeah. up at the... Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Right. Those paintings, just for our listeners who don't know, have become newly controversial for a right. different reason, which is that they contain uh, imagery of the Klan. And, yes. you know, Gustin was an artist who, when one of his first masterpieces was destroyed by the Klan. Yeah. So, I mean, he, he is not uh, celebrating or trying to make the Klan safe in any way. Those paintings are meant to be disturbing, but uh, it's created a huge controversy and actually caused the show to be postponed for several years. Yeah. It's now open and it's uh, extremely bracketed, but I think 
the thing that was frustrating about the initial delay is that we've lost the ability to understand self-loathing. Mm-hmm. You know, Gustin was a Jew who, you know, as you say, had work destroyed by the Klan, but was also in that moment of making those paintings, right? Which were be- like, he, he turned back to representation from abstraction, you know, in the midst of the civil rights era. And one of the things that he's saying is, I am not separate from this. Right. I am implicated in racism, right? My whiteness, even though I am a Jew and even though I understand rationally that I do not have a part in this, there is still a kind of self-loathing for the bits of it that remain, right? That, yes. that we can't escape. And in fact, he's drawn as a Klansman in a self-portrait. He exactly. does a self-portrait where he is one of those Klan figures. Yeah. yeah where he's in this in the studio with the hood and for me as a as a, a you know a biracial person who passes for white i'm finally attuned to the to the ways in which my passing allows me to move through the world in a way that more visibly black people cannot and a, a certain amount of my work is about that as well and in order to get to that feeling, that complicated feeling, we have to be able to spend time with the work. And we have to have situations where we can have a discussion where things move back and forth and where there is disagreement. Mm. And it's hard to figure out like where are the public places where that can happen at the moment. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Nayland Blake. Listeners, we want to hear from you, whether you want us to solve your art problems, tell us about a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Nayland Blake. You know, one context that it feels like is is supplanting everything right now is, you know, the internet. That, you know, it's mm. like, um, I mean, I know that people have been worried about this with technological innovation all the time. You know, there's the famous in the context of no context, which is about television mm. or, you know, whatever. But early on in your career in San Francisco, your work was hyper-local. Mm-hmm. You know, you you had a very specific community you were making your work for. You often knew those people who were in your audiences or who were coming to your work. Um, particularly during the AIDS crisis, there's a shared community of the, the embattled queer community of San Francisco. That's a very different context from, you know, this is all in capital letters, the New York art world or, you know, how the internet is processing this stuff. And I'm wondering how that affects the way that you view your art and your art making process. Well, I think that hasn't shifted, actually, I, I, for me, in, mm. in terms of how I conceive of it. And some of this has to maybe go to working method. But 
it's very hard for me to conceive of a piece without a destination in mind, like a physical destination. So one of the ways I get into trouble or get blocked in the studio is if there's too much stuff hanging on the walls. Hmm. I literally need to clear a space before I can imagine a new thing to kind of go in there. And so you're imagining like a specific venue, like this is a thing that I will perform in this specific gallery or is it just? Yeah. Okay. Got it. And those things, you know, may go on to have a life, you know, after that initial location, but that's not part of the calculus of conceiving of the work. And I, I believe that really strongly that you can't anticipate audience in a broad term. And I'm also very materialist. So for me, it is about the texture, the size, the shape of something. It is about the physicality of it. And I think one of the difficulties with a lot of digital work, for example, and digital culture is that it is essentially boundaryless. It's like, it's going to appear on any number of screens, but you don't really know where those screens are located. Some of them are tiny there. We carry them around with us. And that I think makes it really difficult to kind of conceive of what's an effective action for that space. Right, right. You know, that's funny because we talk all the time on this show about constraints are where creativity comes from. Exactly. And and it sounds like one of the ways you confront what to me is the tyranny of the blank page, but for you is I think the tyranny of the blank wall mm-hmm. or whatever is you create almost an imaginary restraint of like, okay, but it's for this mm-hmm. space or, or whatever. And that helps you inquire your way into the, into yeah. the work. Yeah. And does that come before you even know, and forgive me, these, these are clumsy mm-hmm. terms for this, but like what the issue is that you're going to confront or what thematically you want the piece to do. Like space is absolutely the first yeah. concern. It is that thing of like, okay, what do I want to see here? And then executing mm-hmm. the thing and then looking at the thing that I've executed and going like, okay, why did I want to see that there? So I always think like all work can be read and should be read through a political lens, but through the lens of what is it doing, not what you intended it to do. I'm enough Mm -hmm. of like a crypto Freudian to believe that actually the most interesting stuff about work is the stuff that it does that I did not intend for it to do. And so like, I've come to realize that the three things that I've done for the biennial have all been around intimacy and an attempt to kind of queer and make a kind of like little queer nest inside of this institution for me to kind of like feel okay in my skin occupying that, that space. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the, you know, that wasn't the initial impetus for any of the pieces. Right. You didn't start going, how do I queer the Whitney exactly. Biennial? And then, exactly. and then fi- figure out a bunch yeah. of different strategies. And I don't yeah. think we, I don't yeah. think we ever do. Um, and one of the things that I love about like being able to look over a long stretch of work is to be able to see the ways that certain things recur in the work and certain things move in and out of the work. 
Mm-hmm. And and the work I make is varied, is is looks like a lot of different things. And I, that's quite conscious. Mm-hmm. But I think the thing that it shares throughout is that it is all human-sized. I'm really not interested in what I would call sculpture scale. The idea of like you make something bigger just because art is supposed to be a little bit bigger. That always seems like the weakest rationale for me. And I'm always really interested in art that actually you sort of has the scale of objects in the world, which are actually quite small when you measure them. Right. But I think what that does is it allows the people who see my things to project themselves into it, to sort of mentally try it on in a way. And you're also often inviting their direct participation. I mean, there's the um, there's feeder two where you built basically the gingerbread house from Hansel Mm -hmm. and Gretel and the the spectator is invited to take a chomp of it. If I remember correctly. Or maybe it's just the delicious smell of gingerbread. It's a great size for kids to actually be able to walk into. It's like seven by seven by 10 feet. Um, The first iteration of it, I had this idea to seal the gingerbread panels with polyethylene um, so that they wouldn't crumble. And that was a bad idea because after it was up in the gallery for a few days, we saw like bits were broken off of it and clearly people have been sort of like <laughs> testing and trying to eat it so they felt invited whether or not they were actually Got it. invited well you know that's the trick when you let the audience yeah. have that much room sometimes they do things you don't intend uh, but you know another one is the the work of art that's built out of your record collection yes. ruins of a sensibility which is not a presentation of artistic totems for their own sake. Like here are all the cool ass records I, mm. I've accumulated, but it actually comes with a DJ table yes. so that the spectator in the museum can pick up a record, select a track and, yeah. and, and play it or whatever. Um, I'm just curious about your relationship with audience, you know, and, and how you try to invite them, them in and how that becomes part of your process. The thing about ruins of a sensibility is that it, on one hand is the, you know, notes and era where we used to make a kind of monument of our record collection. Right. But it also is a way for somebody to move out of being a passive viewer of something to actually providing the soundtrack for the other people who were there in the show. So people can mm-hmm. sign up for DJ stints and then, you know, a really interesting thing happens when somebody then becomes the custodian of someone else's experience in the museum, right? Mm -hmm. It sort of breaks up that passive and alienated relationship. The other component of that piece is a, uh, an abstract painting that is a painting um, that I made with my father when I was four years old. Mm in the basement of our building where he was the super. Um, And it's one of my earliest memories is the making of that painting, but it's also a painting that is hung over my parents' couch since that day. And so it's thinking about how you feel at home in a public situation, you know, and I, I think 
that's something else that's coming up again with the art problems is that a number of people will say to me like, well, I can't draw. And I will remind them that they did once and that they stopped, right? Every child draws. And then at a certain point, someone gives them the idea that there are good and bad drawers and the bad drawers shouldn't draw anymore. Yeah. You know, this actually is a, is a great segue to this document that you sent right before the interview that I, that I had the chance to, I haven't read it, you know, which is called, uh, no, 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 no. As soon as I got it, I was like, this is gold. We have to talk about this, uh, called 100 assignments toward a curriculum. It's a unpublished, uh, kind of, you know, prologue in which you explain the purpose of it. And then 100 exercises, mm-hmm. they're prompts and they, they range from just a just to give our readers a sense, imagining a society based on a magazine. So you just pick up a magazine that you've never read and then you read it and you say, imagine this is the only thing I knew about a society. What's that society like? Or sculpting a self-portrait where every part of your body that you feel is vulnerable is rendered at twice its normal size. And I'm interested, how did you develop these, uh, these exercises? Well, some of them are literal assignments that I've given to students. So the magazine assignment is one that I've, I've given to graduate students for many years. Um, some of them are assignments that I have given myself to get myself over being stuck in work. And some of them I came up with because I was like, okay, well, 100 is a round number. So I'm gonna, I have to get myself <laughs> right. past my limit. And I, I think that's an important part of assignments is that how do they push you past your normal stopping place. Right. Yes. You write very movingly. I was very moved as a teacher by this, this thing you said, many people attempt to use assignments to force people to come to a conclusion, to predetermine the outcome. Good assignments awaken us to the breadth of possibilities available to us rather than to narrow things down to one possibility. They are the scaffolding we build to touch the unexpected and wild within ourselves. They are how we stretch there is no wrong answer. There is only the next thing to do. Do you feel like you had to come to a place as an artist where you embrace that like early on in your career? Were you more categorical or, you know, everything has to be purposeful or. I think like most folks early on, I wanted to have the right answer. I wanted art making to be like Lego Right. Like you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. And then you end up with this. Yeah, of course. If you think you can predetermine the outcome, then you're not really doing the work. Mm -hmm. And I think that is one of the reasons why art is so threatening to markets because markets like predictability. And it's, and it's one of the reasons why it's so threatening to political movements because political movements want you know, predictability in a way they want, they, they want a particular policy to have a particular outcome. And Mm -hmm. so early on, I was definitely in that camp and I went to graduate school at California Institute of the Arts in the early eighties. And it was a time of kind of heady theory uh, where the, you know, the goal for the smart students there was to make the work that would be, the illustration for the article in October. 
you know, right. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't necessarily to be published, you know, or, or to or to come up with your own theory about something. It was like to make something that a theoretician would find valuable as a way of explicating some other philosophical idea. Um, and I ended up coming up against the fact that so much of what I was interested in in the world just sort of fell outside of those concerns and particularly sexuality. Mm. And my own theoretical formulation is that all philosophy and all theory issues from bodies. And so people's bodies have to be taken into account in some way. They are impure and that's where their value lies because they, they move us away from tidy certainties. You mentioned earlier on in this interview, the temptation of the tidy certainty, which certainly as a nonfiction writer, I feel mm. all the time, you know, because <laughs> um, we're, we're supposed to deal in facts or what we think are facts, you know? Um, and I think for all of us who are creating in this moment, the temptation to the tidy certainty is very powerful. You've spent your life trying to resist that temptation. I'm just wondering, do you have any, you know, advice for us in this moment of how we embrace the ineffable, embrace the question that can't be answered, embrace the ambiguous or what we feel conflicted about? You know, how do we discover mm. our negative capability when we feel it drifting away from us? I think that it is one, it's to acknowledge that we have the capacity for it. Mm -hmm. But I think also we're all tremendously scared and often our judgments are, you know, behaviors that we arrived at to protect ourselves when we were young and frightened. And so, you know, a thing that happens to me in the studio a lot is that I will have an idea for something that I was going to, something for me to do. And it'll pop into my head and then I'll be like, oh, no, no, that's too corny or, oh, that's too representational or that's too whatever. And when I really examine those twos that were two, it's not necessarily in my voice. It's something that I learned from someone else as a, a way of protecting myself from exposing myself too much in my wildness, in my impurity. And so at that moment, what I've tried to learn to do is to thank that defense mechanism for showing up. And, you know, like, it's like, thank you for coming. I understand that you're trying to protect me. I'm okay right now. And, you know, you don't need to be here. And that sounds like some woo-woo self-help stuff, but I really believe that that is, the, that is the case. When we are making art, we are manifesting our individual presence in the world. And that's an audacious thing to do. And many of us have been shamed out of doing that, right? And so when we find ourselves in a situation where we have a base level of anxiety about all of the things that are going wrong in the world, it gets even harder to not react out of fear and not, you know, it's like 
this is the problem with Twitter right now, right? Is that I have to continually remind myself that people don't need to know what I think about this. I don't really have something to say about it. I'm horrified. But so much of our statements on Twitter are about broadcasting to folks that you're horrified so that no one thinks that you're not horrified. Right. Which is a very tidy way of not dealing with the horror. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Nayland Blake, thank you so much for joining us this week and talking about your process and sharing just so much wisdom about creativity. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Isaac, that was an amazing interview. Thank you. I had to pause literally at several points to write down verbatim some of the things they said. Amazing. I've long thought that to succeed in the art world, whatever that means, but in this specific case, I mean making enough money to be able to stay in the art world, you have to be able to talk really compellingly about your work, to have a philosophy of creation. And Nayland gave me a lot of really interesting, fresh ways of thinking in pretty much every answer. So thank you for that. Um, You also clearly know this world very well. Can you talk a bit about your own relationship to the art world? Have you written much about art? Uh, Well, first of all, June, I just want to say thank you for all those kind words. I actually texted Cameron the second the interview was over. (laughs) I was like, that was all killer, no filler. Uh, yes. So I, I'm just very excited. I'm grateful for to Nalen for reaching out to us and you know doing the show. Um, I don't think I've ever written about visual art, actually. I find it very intimidating. And this is, I think, the first visual artist who's been a guest of mine on Working, which I hope to correct in the future. But um, my grandparents were actually art collectors. Uh, oh. So I grew up around a lot of art. And they were friends with a lot of the artists in the scene that Nalen was talking about in the 50s and 60s and, and wow. 70s in New York. They had... a. a basically a department store and they would trade appliances to artists in New York, not only in New York, but to artists for artwork because, you know, people were living in these apartments that had no amenities. They were falling apart and all this stuff. And if you wanted a TV or whatever, you know, you would uh, trade it to them. And then they became art collectors on top of that. And, and many of those artists are people you've never heard of. Right. And they, they loved that art as much as the art from the people you have heard of it. You know, like Andy Warhol was one of those. Chuck Close (laughs) was one of those people. Roy Lichtenstein was one of those people and they became socially friendly with them as well. So I grew up in a world that was like really surrounded by American art. And it's certainly one of the reasons I think why I've tried to make my life in not visual art, because I have no skills in that department whatsoever, but that I've tried to make my life in art is definitely because of the sense of permission I felt from growing up in that environment. Wow, that's an amazing story. Wait, I can actually tell you one time my dad went with my grandfather to meet Warhol and the um, to see him and talk to him about you know what work he has coming up and the Marylands are coming off of the press like they've literally silk screening the Marilyn Monroe ones and wow. um, in the corner is a television that my grandfather had given Warhol and it's on the fritz so the vertical you know tube or whatever it's weird lines and you know my my grandfather says oh and Andy we'll have to just get you a, a new TV and he goes no 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 I like it better this way. <laughs> 
And that, listeners, is where Max Headroom came from. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I loved how, I guess, down to earth Nayland is about art and their point about play being essential to creativity really resonated. I'm curious, though, to get your view on another aspect of that. As Nayland said, pretty much every kid draws. And as they're learning to speak and later write, many kids play with language in a way that's probably closer to poetry than any other form of writing. And yet, art and poetry are maybe, maybe dance, but they're probably the two art forms that people are most afraid to talk about or write about or respond to in public for fear of looking foolish or inadequately educated or something. First, do you agree with that? Do you have any theories about the root of that anxiety? And more, I guess, to the point on working, any tips for overcoming it? Yeah, well, you know, I think there's a lot of different reasons for that. I do think that the poetry world and the visual art world need to take a long look at the mirror and mm. and look at the ways in which they have enabled that anxiety with gatekeeping, with, you know, trying to... Um, use theory to avoid being criticized and, and and things like that. I mean, every art form has that problem to some extent, but I do think that both of those worlds need to kind of <laughs> think about what they can do themselves around that. Yeah. I do also think some of the anxiety comes from the fact that we do do those things as kids. Yeah. You know? And so... Uh, you know, first Corinthians tells us we're supposed to put aside childish things, right? So there is a way in which if you're not going to be really good at it and a professional at it and make money from it, isn't it indolent and lazy and against our Protestant work ethic as Americans to spend time with it? You know, I, I mean, wow. I think that's also part of it. Um, I will say that whatever kind of art making you're doing or that you want to do, it's really important to create an environment for yourself that enables risk and embraces failure and views that as totally okay. So like one of the things that Nalen does is Nalen does a drawing every day, huh. you know, and, uh, or, you know, writers do morning pages or whatever, right? That's an example. Like one, one environment you could create is that you could make work that you don't intend for anyone to see for a while mm -hmm, just to like mm -hmm. try it out, you know, um, or it could be about creating a community that you can, you know, a reading group or, you know, whatever, where you can do your poetry and like, no one's going to care about whether it's good or not. You're just testing shit out. You know, comics do that with their, uh, you know, when they're working on material, they go to a supportive club and do drop in and do five minutes or whatever. So some of it's creating an environment that enables that kind of risk and failure and to know that, you know, most art is bad. You're going to fall on your face a lot and it's okay. You know, that's part of getting to the, to getting to the good stuff. I also think, you know, one thing Nalen talks about in that interview that I was very moved by is, is the dialogue that they have with the voice of anxiety in their head with yes, the voice of yes. fear. And I think that's really great. I mean, I am also not a particularly woo woo person and <laughs> I'm an atheist and all sorts of other stuff, mm -hmm, but you know, mm -hmm. when I get that voice in my head, I, I actually tried it that ever since that interview of being like, Hey, you know, I understand you're trying to protect me from failure and humiliation or whatever, but I'm just sitting at my desk right now. I don't need you to do that. It's okay. And I actually think that's really healthy that that voice is just a part of you it is not the totality of you yeah you know? it doesn't have to be the end of the conversation right yeah yeah I, yeah because i hear that voice all the time and why not respond to it why is that any stranger than hearing it right yeah yeah totally absolutely um 
There was something very striking in Nayland's discussion of the capitalist forces underpinning the art world. You know, they resist and advise other artists to resist that concept of niching down in order to find representation and therefore hopefully customers for your work because they want them to make art without considering that kind of external concept. At the same time, Nayland has to have a quite specific idea of the physical space a work will initially inhabit before they can make that piece, which in a sense is a question of audience. And I'm not suggesting that those things are contradictory, by the way. It just feels like a concrete example of the kind of embracing of ambiguity that's clearly very important to them. But I'm curious, Isaac, when you're creating, whether that's in theatre or in the work you do now as a cultural critic and historian, how do you balance your wonderfully weird personal vision, and of course I mean that as a compliment, needless to say, and the desire to find and satisfy an audience, which I think often kind of rubs off those weird edges, right? Yeah. I mean, how much time do we have? And, you know, <laughs> what do you charge by the hour in June so we can figure right. this out? Look, I mean, when it comes to most things these days, I'm going to be totally honest. Uh, I, I'm part of a family of three. You know, I have a financial commitments to that family. And, you know, I am thinking about how am I going to get paid to do this? I'm 43 now. I'm not going to suddenly get a full-time office job, you know, and I'm not so famous that I can just easily set up a project if I'm interested in it and get money, you know? Um, Um, so I do need to think about that stuff. So for example, if I'm working on a book, you know, that I'm going to sell on a proposal and that changes to some extent because I want to be paid to write it. That changes what I'm going to go out and do. I'm not going to suddenly write a novel on spec and then shop it around. Right. Um, maybe I should, you know, I mean, that is a choice that I've made. That's a more conservative choice. At the same time, I don't feel like I've niched down. I mean, you know, I don't think, you know, there's, there's through lines between the major projects I've done. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. because they're all made in part by me, but they're very different from each other. The world only spins forward is an oral history that tells the story of a, of an era in America through the lens of, you know, the, the birth and rise of the play angels in America, uh, and had a co-author. Um, The method is only written by me and it's a prose cultural history. You know, there's not a word of original writing in The World Only Spins Forward. The method is only original Mm -hmm. writing. All I'm saying is I have a lot of different ideas. I have a lot of impulses that pull me in a lot of different directions. And what I am often trying to think is like, okay, this is the idea I have. Now, how do I get paid enough that it's not irresponsible for me to pursue it? Which is a different thing from like, I am the pop Shakespeare guy. That is my Mm -hmm. brand now. And now that's the only thing I'm going to do, which certainly I could have tried to pursue after the stuff I did about Shakespeare for Slate. And I sort of deliberately did not want to do that. So, you know, I, I do think it's about trying to find that that mix, you know? Although I, I kind of wish that every time something happened in the world, I could look forward to Isaac's like Shakespearean connection. So like, hmm, <laughs> right. what does Shakespeare have to tell us about Rishi Sunak versus Lynn Truss for the leader of the Conservative Party in, in Britain? I mean, the answer is to look at Coriolanus and uh, <laughs> I'm sure you'll find the answer there because Coriolanus has a lot to say about political leadership. But yeah, well, yeah. I, I'm, I'm very flattered. I'm very flattered that you think that. I mean, I do think that that body of work has a lot to tell us about our life or a lot to ask us about our lives today. And I always love talking about it, but I actually have had for a while, I was demurring from writing about it and purposely not pitching pieces about it because I didn't want to be that guy. I don't think my next book is going to be about acting. 
you know, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I've all, I've done that with the method. And now I want to go learn about something else. Yeah. Wow. Um, the last question you asked Nayland about how they resist uh, in that great phrase, the tidy temptation of certainty and embrace the ineffable felt to me like a just an extremely Isaac question. <laughs> kind of is, in, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it totally is. In the sense that I have a feeling this is something you think about a lot. Nayland gave a fantastic answer, but I'm curious. If I were to ask you the same question, what would you say, mm. Isaac Butler? Do you have any tips for how our listeners can become more comfortable with the ineffable? You know, there was one point where I was talking about embracing the uncertainty or the ineffable and contradictions and ambiguity so often that I I brought it up. (laughs) At one point, I was talking about it over lunch with my editor and he was like, I'm sensing a theme. Um, (laughs) I think it's something I struggle with a lot because I'm a very rational left brain person, but I think great art comes from a place of uncertainty and negative capability and ambiguity, you know? (laughs) And I also think we're in a moment, I, I wrote about this recently for Slate, I think we are in a moment where because of the feeling of emergency and crisis that we feel right now, uh, as artists, I think we are leaning too much into certainty. I think the reaction has been a, a run to certainty and to tell people that we have the right ideas and what those right ideas are. And I think that's reflected in our movies and our TV and our books and in the, some of the art that I saw at the biennial even, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I, I just think this is a pendulum that swings and it's going to go back. Do you know what I mean? I'm not saying yeah. kids these days don't know how to make things or anything like <laughs> that. I'm just, um, so part of it is I think you can cultivate a space within yourself for encounters with the ineffable. And and you do that through art. You know, if you're reading something or seeing something and being like, I don't know what I think about that, or I don't know what the message of this is or whatever, hold on to that, spend more time with it, dissect it, you know, watch it again. Or, I mean, for me, some, I mean, Shakespeare is an obvious example of this, you know, uh, where he's raising a lot of questions. And by the end of the play, you're not really sure what he thinks about any of it. Um, (laughs) Iris Murdoch. That's one of the reasons why I love Iris Murdoch. I think one of the reasons why James Baldwin has had this career comeback is that he's asking a lot of questions that he's not totally sure how to answer or that his opinions change over the course of his career. Um, You know, the first half of his career and the second half of his career is very different points of view, for example, about, about race in America. Um, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why we go to Montaigne's essays or whatever. Um, As we do. As we do. Right. Uh, But I'm just saying there's a lot of art out there that is living in that space of ambiguity. And and even if it makes you uncomfortable, spend some time with it and see, Mm -hmm. see what's what, what provokes. I also think that it's important not to bullshit and not Mm. to have fake arguments. So Mm. don't pretend to be uncertain about something you're certain about. We're all certain about all sorts of things, except that you're certain about that thing. And then, (laughs) and then move from that space of comfort into the more uncomfortable. What don't I know about? I mean, a perfect example for me is of course, angels in America where, you know, Tony Kushner is not uncertain about, whether the American right is bad. He's very certain about that. Um, And that's very clear in that play. What that, that play is asking all sorts of other questions that he is clearly wrestling with in the process of writing the play. What do we owe other people versus what do we owe ourselves? What does caretaking actually mean? And how are men who are not socialized to caretake going to learn how to caretake? You know, what is the place of religion in, in these very dark times, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so what is the future of American liberalism? You know, these are questions that he doesn't know the answer to and that he's using that play to explore. So I think the more you're trying to find that, the better. I also think, you know, 
you might be certain about something and also certain about the opposite of it at the same time. You know, <laughs> we all have dialectics within us and finding those, I think, is is really useful. And I think, again, it's going to raise a voice in your head that's maybe uncomfortable and a little afraid. And then you just have to have a dialogue with that voice that allows you to move into it. You know, that's my feeling about it anyway. Yeah. Listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way you will never, ever miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Naylan Blake for being such a wonderful guest this week. Thank you to our producer, Cameron Drews, the true artist of audio editing and host (laughs) uh, wrangling, and to Kevin Bendis for all of his help with the research for this week's episode. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with casting director Angelique Mid-Thunder. Until then, get back to work. Hey, welcome back, Slate Plus subscribers, and thank you so much for everything you do to support what we do right here. I'm working. I've got a little extra time with Nayland Blake, and we are going to talk about video games of all things, because I happened to see in an interview just this offhand thing that the interviewer didn't follow up on about your interest in video games and video game design and how you see it as an innovative space for the artist participant relationship among other things and so i just wanted to give you a chance to talk about that you know what what video games are you playing how do you draw inspiration from them uh you know things of that nature sure i'm i have to admit that i am uh kind of basic in some ways so in the midst of covid i was deep down the animal crossing rabbit hole it's just so soothing i invented a second account on my um on my island simply so that i could not only build like a leather bar in one of my houses but also like a bathhouse in the other amazing one. um and i kind of loved the way that uh people were playing it kind of against the grain so i'm i'm always really interested in when people kind of come up like people who are speedrunners but people who are um, coming up with these kind of interesting ways of inhabiting game spaces um, in in a not normal way. So these days, I'm still in the midst of Elden Ring. Yeah. The thing that I love about it is that you can kind of just wander around and not have to do everything. Um, you can like take a break and go off. And I literally just had that experience mm-hmm. of like, getting to part of the Altus plateau and suddenly like you get the map marker and you're like, Oh my God, this thing is like twice as big as I thought. It was. Yeah, that, that keeps happening. You know, when you first go down the well and you discover that there's this underground yeah. area as big, almost as big as the other map. And yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it really is about the way that, game designers are designing kind of interactive experiences and that that is a way of thinking about audience in a, in a way that is often much more sophisticated than the art world say conceives of an audience. How would you describe that sophistication? Well, I like a game that 
um, as I say, can be played against the grain. Mm-hmm. Um, that that where there's a space in it for a behavior to emerge, and that doesn't get kind of uh, doesn't get kind of locked down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I played I, I uh, a while back. I played like Dream Daddy, which is a, this um, visual novel about dating various dads, and uh, I do play a certain number of uh dating sims Mm -hmm. and i I think that often in the art world the notion of interactivity is reduced to the idea of like oh we'll give you a button that you can push right (laughs) you know like like okay the audience can now push this button or they can post something on the wall but that that's unnecessarily um it it's not like at the level of like the big reveal in Bioshock, right? Right. For example, as problematic as that game is in a lot of other ways. Um, so, you know, uh, it just feels like kind of uh, reduced in that sense. The thing this raises for me is that one of the things that, that games can do when they nail that sophisticated relationship right is really actually make you think on an emotional level, on an ethical level, whatever about the choices you are making within mm-hmm. that world to, to give an example, like um, disco Elysium, which was a big pandemic play for me. You know, you can play that game as a horrible racist. You mm-hmm. can get your partner killed in that game. You can do really terrible things in that game if you want to. Um, and the game treats those things thoughtfully. It's not doing that in a shitty way. I just want to make that clear for people who haven't played it. But right. like, I couldn't make those choices. Like, I found that I was, and it's not because I'm not trying to say I'm the most moral human being in the world, but I have trouble making ethical decisions other than the ones that I would make within the structure of a video game. Whereas other people, I think, use them as a kind of catharsis of those uglier parts of themselves. They can mm-hmm. test that part out. Um, and I wonder what it would mean for visual art <laughs> or art in a museum to like really do that to us more and what mm-hmm. kind of work would really do that for us. Well, I think we would have to be put in a situation where we could actually feel those complexities. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the great things about RPGs in general is that you understand where the boundary is so that you can spend the time to tease out those possibilities. Right. Whereas in most art situations, you rarely have the time to actually be able to register what it is that you're looking at, much less um, to, to explore its internal structure or, or ask about like the moral choices that it embodies, mm. right? Yeah, totally. Um, so, so part of what games do is that they provide sufficient time to be able to experience those questions. And that's why I've, I'm always irritated when people are like, oh, well, it's just play. Mm-hmm. Like, this is something that I'm sure comes up a lot, but people use the term just playing uh, all the time when they're talking about being in the art world. And I'm like, well, play is actually how humans learn. Right. Like that's the mechanism that we have for learning. <laughs> yeah. And usually like when you look at kids and they're playing, the they're playing about the most important stuff on earth. They're like playing with pretending to be dead. They're, you know, hide and seek is about like 
do I continue to exist if someone doesn't see me? Right. <laughs> you know? Totally. Totally. If I'm if I'm lost, will anyone ever look for me? Yeah. <laughs> so that's <laughs> that's like an intense thing. That's not just playing. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think that's like taking seriously the the circumstances under which you can experience a moral ambiguity is something that would need to be designed into the art experience for more people to be able to access it in that sense. And everybody's given the message that contemporary art isn't for them and that they're just supposed to appreciate it. Right. Um, And that's part of the class marker that I was talking about earlier. Right. Um, So if something makes you feel morally ambiguous and you're told that you're just supposed to shut up and appreciate it, you might get angry. Like, like there's not a lot for you to do in that situation. That has in fact happened to me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then that becomes like, ugh, my six-year-old could do this. <laughs> well, well, yes, that's the point. And you were six-year-old, six years old once, and you could do this. So mm. why don't you? <laughs> right. Totally. Well, Nayland, thank you so much for joining us for a little extra time and uh, geeking out about video games. Well, a subject I could talk about for hours. Uh, And Slate Plus subscribers, thank you so much for everything you do to support us here at Slate. We'll be back next week with another episode of Working.